and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with one of the photographers who helped document the decade from Brightscrove, Ontario, Richard Bland. So in the same way that Charles Peterson kind of grew up with the Seattle scene and the grunge scene in the late 80s, early 90s, you kind of grew up with the uh, Toronto kind of Canadian rock scene in the early 90s. Um, can you talk a little bit about how a legendary career like yourself uh, gets started? Like, what was your first gig as a rock photographer? Oh, man. Okay, so, geez, if you want to go back to, like, I'll, I'll go to the very beginning and I'll skate ahead so we get back up to the 90s. But sure. in in 1986 was the first big, big gig that I ever brought my camera to. Hmm. And it was the Grateful Dead playing with Tom Petty and Bob Dylan in Buffalo at Rich Stadium. Oh, wow. And, um Back in the day, the dead were super cool about uh, allowing people to audio record their concerts. And as far as I felt, it was pretty laid back about bringing a camera. Um, So I brought a camera with me to that show. I didn't actually have a photo pass, but this is long before metal detectors and even being padded down on your way into a gig. So I literally just walked in in the summertime. It was July 4th and uh, I walked in with my camera. And uh, so, you know, I made pictures of all three bands and then. Uh, prior to that, you know, I grew up, uh, in a town called Brights Grove, which is outside of Sarnia and an hour from Detroit. So, you know, growing up listening to Detroit music and reading magazines back then, uh, like Rolling Stone or Hit Parade or Cream magazine. I remember looking at those magazines all the time and seeing pictures in there. And I thought, wow, who does this job, right? That's a cool looking <laughs> job. So when I brought my camera to that Grateful Dead concert, I got the pictures home something kind of ignited in my brain because I thought, wow, I'm actually looking at my own photographs rather than the photographs of Bob Gruen or Mick Rock or Lynn Goldsmith or whoever from the 70s. And um, uh, it just made me think, maybe, maybe. (laughs) And then I shot a few other shows through the late 80s, you know, U2 in 1987 on their Joshua Tree tour. And I shot The Cure a couple times and um, bringing these photos home. So, uh, uh, I was studying mechanical engineering, first of all, and I actually graduated from it. And uh, I I went out looking for a job. And, uh, you know, again, another long story, but I realized that mechanical engineering was really not going to be where I was going to spend my life employed. It, it just was a little too straight edge for me. And uh, I ended up getting this job in Etobicoke, sandblasting. And, uh, it was kind of an awful job. Um, <laughs> I was living in this crap motel on Lakeshore. It's kind of funny because those motels now are these super duper expensive condos. <laughs> um, and it, it was probably like $30 a night, but it was a bit depressing. I'd come home in the dead of winter, freezing cold and sand everywhere. And so one night I walked out to this phone booth, uh, you know, long before cell phones. And I called my friend up and I, you know, I was just kind of moaning about <laughs> how things weren't the way I, w- I had hoped for. Mind you, I was probably maybe 19 at this time. And uh, my friend's like, why don't you go back to school and study photography? That's what you always loved. And, you know, you go bring your camera into these concerts and you get these pretty decent pictures. And I thought, you know what? You're right. So it, it was that conversation in that phone booth that brought me to school. Uh, so I went to Fanshawe. Uh, college in London, Ontario to study photography. And um, uh, within the first five weeks, there was a teacher strike. 
I, I was off on a great start. And then this <laughs> teacher strike came and I thought, oh, man, this is not what I want either, as much as I support the teachers and what they're up to here. So I withdrew from the program. I took my money from school and I bought an open-ended plane ticket and I went to Europe um, with all my school money. I bought this van and I lived in the van for about six months. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really, really cool. I brought a bunch of film with me. I brought my textbook that I uh, had for photography for my program. And I did my best to teach myself. But, you know, you can't learn everything from a textbook and just messing around with a bunch of film. So I came back from Europe, <clears throat> jumped back into school. And uh, after living in a van for six months, um, as, as wonderful of, of an adventure that was, I was ready to get into school and, and really kick down. So it was a three-year program. And, you know, within my first year, there was a school newspaper. It's probably still there. It was called the Ontario Bang. I went down to the Ontario Bang and asked if I could do some photography for the school newspaper. And I, I let the guy know, uh, the editor, that... I didn't really want to shoot lifestyle or sports or anything. All I wanted to do was photograph the bands that would come to the pub. <laughs> and uh, it, they used to have a, I think it was a Tuesday or a Thursday night pub night there. And, you know, at the time, they were bigger Canadian bands that were showing up, uh, Junk House and the Tea Party. And so we're probably in about 1991 right now, maybe 92, 91. And uh, so I just started shooting bands down at the pub. And then... Um, you know, a couple things kind of spawned from that or blossomed from that. Uh, one was uh, I said to the editor one day, uh, and keep in mind, this is long before computers were accessible to send emails and all that. I said to the editor, uh, is there any way we can start shooting things outside of the, the, the confines of Fanshawe? Like, can I shoot down at uh, call the office or the embassy or whatever? You know, these are the pubs mm -hmm. that or the bars that were in London. And uh, or can I even be photographing in Toronto? I, you know, I've always been a bit of a keener. And he said, hey, man, if you want to do the legwork, I support whatever you want. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, if you want to make the phone calls. So I just went home and started making phone calls. And uh, you'd be surprised when you're a student how the doors open. And um, within that time, I, I locked down. I got to go shoot ZZ Top and uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens. And I shot Rush and I, I shot Pink Floyd. Um, you know, there was a bunch that I just managed to lock down. And then I was in the dark room printing a bunch of this stuff. And there was this woman in there and you're going to like this story. <laughs> um, her name's Paula Tizard and Paula oh, no. is continued to be a friend of mine. I'm sure you just picked up on that last name. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Paula just saw me, you know, this is a traditional dark room with the trays, chemicals. I was printing a photograph of Ron Wood from the Rolling Stones and, you know, it came up in the tray, you know, that was the wonderful thing. It just, it pops up in front of you. And Paula was in the dark room. She's like, Hey, what, you know, what do you, what's going on over here? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm just printing some shots. Like these were from 1989, some old negatives I had. Huh. And she's like, Oh man, you should go uh, talk to my brother, Ken Tizard, who, uh, he's a photo editor at this <laughs> magazine in Toronto called the uh, Canadian musician. Oh, wow. And so this is before he was in The Watchmen. I, I know he was a musician because he's obviously a killer musician, mm -hmm. um, but he wasn't in The Watchmen yet. So a weekend or three later, I went to Toronto because I was always zipping back and forth to Toronto from London. And I went to visit Ken. And uh, man, you know, th there's a lot of things that open doors for me, but that particular moment opened so many doors. Hmm. And so um, I was heading off to Europe that summer, you know, going, I built these 
little connections in Europe, friends and whatnot. So uh, I, I was doing whatever I could to just go, you know, hang out mostly in London, uh, England. Anyway, I told Ken I was going to London. And he's like, oh, you should go visit this photo agency that we buy photos from while you're there. Hmm. And they were called uh, Syndicated International Network. And they went by the acronym SIN. So I went to visit Sin in London, and the photo editor, her name is um, Leanne Hensher, Canadian, and it was awesome. She's, she was so kind to me. She's like, oh, wow, you're all the way here, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we just hit it off because we we're both Canadians. And she gave me all these amazing gigs to go photograph. So at night, I would go shoot gigs in central London. And then in the daytime, I would deliver packages for Sin around London on, on the subway. And it was really exciting as a youngster and just, you know, running around in the subway. And, and then on the weekends, uh, occasionally I would go over to Europe and photograph, uh, uh, like to mainland Europe, um, whether it be Germany or Holland or whatever. And I'd go photograph some festivals. And uh, it's not as glorious as it sounds. I don't want this to sound bigger than it is. But, you know, <laughs> I would sleep in my car, literally. Or I had a tent that I would just pop up at one of the rest areas. So at night, I'd sleep in a tent. And, you know, I was eating rice and beans or whatever. But at night, I would go photograph these great festivals. One of the festivals I shot, oh, my God, I'm really rambling a whole story to you. That's uh, great. You know, I'm, please. <laughs> Uh, one of the festivals I shot was this one in Belgium. And, uh, so we're in 1993 at this moment. Uh, and I remember the dates easy to remember. It was July three and July four and, uh, Metallica was a headline. Uh, Neil Young was second from the top. Wow. Um, the black crows faith, no more, uh, um, a bunch of other killer bands, uh, Lenny Kravitz third from the bottom, our beloved tragically hip. Oh, no way. Yeah, so that was my, it wasn't my first time seeing the hip, but it was my first time photographing the Tragically Hip. Huh. And because it was pretty laid back backstage, backstage in, in Europe's a lot different than it is in Canada. And um, I got to talk to the guys. I got to talk to all kinds of people hmm. um, on that in that festival. But, uh, you know, I sat, I remember talking to Gord Sinclair in particular. And uh, there you go, like, boom, 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 boom. Hmm. A whole bunch of things just, opened up and it really roots back to, I guess, Paula Tizard and, and <laughs> Ken Tizard. Like I owe a lot to those two and I'm, I'm still friends with both of them. I, you know, I follow them on Instagram. Paula's an incredible photographer. Uh, check out her Instagram. Like, man, that, that woman knows how to light. She's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and Ken, as you know, he's still a musician. He's got his uh, music for goats. And, uh, so there you go. There, there's a bunch of it. Um, do you remember the very first concert you shot for that school paper? I don't really remember the number one first one. Like I have mm. a pretty good record of my negatives, so I probably could find it. But from my recollection of Canadian bands, it is either Junk House or the Tea Party. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the Tea Party, it was interesting because, um, you know, I really loved the door. I still love the doors. I really love Led Zeppelin. And uh, probably people, maybe their toes curl when they hear this, or maybe it's... <laughs> A cliche to say this, but Jeff Martin kind of embodied Jimmy Page's playing, and he had this, you know, baritone voice mm -hmm. like Jim Morrison, and he had that same kind of hair and appeal, and you know, and on the obviously uh, the other guys, uh, yeah, Stuart and Jeff, yeah, you know, they're incredible musicians. So I remember just thinking, wow, these guys are fantastic, and so I I actually ended up getting a photo shoot with them 
they were playing over at the, the University of Western this particular night. They might have played Fanshawe one night and Western the next night. And so I ended up getting a photo shoot for the Aaron Terrell Bang. And um, we did it outside and it was raining. So I think my memory brings me back to it's either Junk House or, or Tea Party. Sorry. Do you have a favorite Tea Party song or one that uh, you really gravitate towards? Yeah, you're really firing up my memory here now. And <laughs> there's two kind of eras for me of, of the Tea Party that I really, really uh, was drawn to. And, uh, you know, going back to Edges of Twilight, Fire in the Head, hmm. uh, great. And watching them play that live.
Actually, with uh, Ken Tizard, he also, I heard on another podcast that he was also, uh, he gave you another gig at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens that was pretty instrumental in your career. Yeah, so here, here's, I'll start it here. My birthday's on November 3rd. So on November 3rd, I was, uh, you know, I was in school. I was at going to Fanshawe Photography. Went home that afternoon after school. My phone rings, <clears throat> again, before cell phones. <laughs> and uh, it's Ken Tizard on the phone. He's like, hey, Richard, what's happening, you know? And uh, tomorrow, Nirvana's playing in uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. Can you come to Toronto and photograph it for us? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, inside, I'm like, oh, my God, yes. But quietly, I'm like, yeah, sure, I could do that, Ken, for sure. And uh, <laughs> I said, can you get me an extra ticket? I, you know, I'd love to bring my girlfriend. And uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, we'll get you an extra seat. So my girlfriend and I went down to Toronto the next day, November 4th, and huh. uh, I photographed um, Nirvana and the meat puppets and oh, boredoms wow. opened and uh that was on the in utero tour and you know if if you've been to maple leaf gardens you know like there's just this vibe in maple leaf gardens it wasn't the best venue to hear a gig but it just it, there was so much history in there and the walls sweat with this history and so it was just great being in there you know i've seen a lot of shows there over the years but that particular show shooting and watching nirvana was uh Man, it, it 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 changed my trajectory mm. again. <laughs> what was the kind of rules for that particular gig? Was that like the first three songs? How did they like to to work yeah, the photographers? That was the first three songs, and uh, the so, man, you know, I concentrated on photographing Kurt mm. because when you're working for a magazine, you have to do the job, right? And um, you know, no offense to Chris or or Dave, but they wanted pictures of Kurt. So mm. I think pretty much the bulk of my photographs from that show are of Kurt uh, Cobain. So, um, man, now I look back, I'm like, why didn't I just swing around and get a couple pictures? <laughs> I think I remember Dave Grohl's drum set was way back and it would have been hard to get photographs because Kurt had these monitors very close to him. Do you remember the first um, cover you got for a magazine? The first cover that I can recall that I did was... Um, impact magazine and it was sloan and we did something richard sibbled and i um rich is a great friend of mine and he graduated a year be before me um so he was already in toronto working and i used to see his name in magazines all the time and right when i moved to toronto i set my sights on the couple magazines that were there a couple national ones mainly being impact and chart at the time so i went down to impact I met Rich that day and I was really excited because I'm like, oh my God, I used to see your name or I see your name in magazines all the time when I was in school. And uh, he's like, yeah, I see your name from time to time. And we hit it off. Anyway, Chart want, or sorry, Impact wanted to do this cover of Sloan and somehow Rich and I ended up doing it together. Um, so we went and did the shoot together. It was a bit of a collaboration between the two of us. And we did this kind of Beatles cover meet the Beatles, we're the Be meet the Beatles, I think where it was just black and white. And it was just the four heads hmm. of the guys from Sloan. And so that was the first cover that I recall. And I worked on it together with rich. Now, when you have like a, a concept like that, is that something that you also, you have to pitch both to the magazine and to the band and the band's management saying, this is what I want to do. Or are they just kind of giving you free reign to, so to speak? Uh, it depends who you're shooting for, what you're shooting for, why. Like when it was an editorial, you were allowed a little bit of freedom. The cover usually had to be something that was pretty 
cover friendly, you know, that showed the band's faces for the middle part, middle, you know, the feature story or whatever, you had a little bit of more creative freedom. Now, if you're shooting album artwork or publicity photos, they have different purposes as well. You know, publicity photos need to be more of a utility photo where they get sent out to magazines or newspapers, maybe a band's about to come to town. Uh, so they need something that they can write text over, or maybe you shoot it on the white background so it's easy to cut out and they can plop it into another poster or story. Uh, whereas editorial, there's room for you to be a bit creative, but keep in mind an editorial shoot usually was anywhere from 10 minutes to maybe an hour on the outside. And then if you do an album artwork, that's more of a collaboration where maybe you would pitch a treatment, an idea to a label or management or the actual band if you get to know them. And then you would kind of kick around some ideas. And my best collaborative efforts have come with uh, the Tragically Hip and Nickelback. Like those are the bands that I was able to kind of bounce ideas around with much more freely. You mentioned uh, Chart Magazine, um, the very first issue of Chart Magazine I ever bought. And I know it's the very first issue because uh, they used to be bigger and then they kind of dropped by a couple inches, the size. Anyhow, they had a photograph of yours on the cover and the article was written by Karen Pace. Yeah. Oh, man. So much to say in that sentence. First of all, Karen Pace, I absolutely adore. Um, As you know, Karen's a Mm -hmm. really, really great friend of mine. And she has been an incredible support for me. Uh, you know, professionally for years and years and years. So I just have to say that because Karen, uh, I owe a lot to as well as a friend and as a professional. She's um, been a big support of mine. And I don't want to say a fan, but she's been somebody that's just been right behind me and like, go get them kind of person. In oh, for, for this project as well, for everything I've, I've ever had to do, you uh, introduced us and she's been invaluable. She's yeah. a great, great person, a great friend, and a great supporter. So I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, when you have Karen in your corner, man, you're gonna win. <laughs> <laughs> she just, uh, she's a good one, a uh, good friend to have. So, um, Chart OLP. Okay, so let's say another good thing about Chart. Chart are. I was just talking to Ed online yesterday. Ed Skira, mm-hmm. uh, great, great bunch of people at chart and man, I have the greatest memories from hanging out in that office down on Britain street there. And <laughs> I used to go visit them every other week and just hang around and talk and figure out what we're going to shoot. And you're right. Chart was bigger then it scaled down to a bit more of a, a normal magazine rack kind of size. I remember mm-hmm. that too. A couple other things, I guess for, when I first moved to Toronto, I, cause I, you know, I moved to Toronto in 1994. I think right when I graduated mm. and um, I had my sight set on a couple of the big names chart and impact uh, so I went to both places right away and I ended up getting shoots with both of them uh, so chart was really instrumental in, in helping me and boosting my career and confidence right from the beginning OLP I can't remember where that fell in in terms of who I photographed first but uh, that particular one we wanted to do it in a store on Queen Street. The kind of idea was to have them maybe not as mannequins, but we wanted them in the window uh, to help promote their album. So it was kind of like we're promoting from the store this incredible Canadian band with this great front man. And I think we first shot them in the front window at the shoe store on, on Queen, right by Much Music. I couldn't tell you the name of it. I, I might have bought a pair of Doc Martens there or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then we did a couple shots in the interior. I remember there was a hardwood floor and we photographed them on one of the places where you would put your shoes on and, you know, they were super cooperative and collaborative as well. That would have been a shoot that was, I think Karen and I maybe pitched the location to them. And, uh, and then I, I'm pretty sure Rich Sibyl helped me on that one as well. Uh, I, I can remember driving in his car and pulling up out front there. Wow. Thanks for reminding me of all that. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I remember from that. And then I remember, you know, just how big they were getting at that time and how exciting it was, uh, their music and how important it was. And I can remember going on a road trip, uh, up to Bracebridge to go snowmobiling, listening to that album. And, uh, I think they even played Maple Leaf Gardens on that tour. Sure. I saw them or shot them there. Maybe they opened for somebody, but I think they headlined it at some point. And they were another band, you know, obviously, you know, call the office, but mm-hmm. call the office was just this, beacon it was a church of rock and roll in (laughs) london you know the embassy was good too like it had the kind of harder bands um although i remember seeing 13 engines there but uh call the office yeah like everyone played there and it was just i sold the, the guy a camera that owned the um call the office and part of the deal was he would put me on a permanent guest list. So to this day, I'm actually on a guest list. Permanently. That was part of our deal, but I think they've changed owners and they closed down now. But, uh, so I could get into every gig. Is there a song or, or a band that's, um, you know, is really reflective of those experiences that call the office, man, I'm going to name a couple of bands that I don't know if you talk about these guys or not, but one of the greatest bands of probably the late eighties into the earliest nineties to see, live in my opinion was the phantoms hmm. the phantoms were a killer I, it was so fun like jerome godbu and uh, joe tool the guitar player he's now or he was a bartender down at uh, the horseshoe in toronto hmm. uh those two guys were mick and keith and 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 going to see those guys live like everyone would be dancing and grooving and hmm. and they would be jam-packed in there uh, so they were one of the most fun bands ever. Whenever they played, we would have a party and the guys would come back and we would call it the Phantom Party. And <laughs> we would have this party and the band would show up and it was just rock and roll. Behind my eyes 
and another band that I, I really remember in um, in Call the Office, and this is definitely going to hit your podcast, is uh, I Mother Earth. And for my money, I Mother Earth was the you know Dig is uh, possibly the best album that, that came out in the, that early '90s period. I can't remember what year it came out. Maybe '92 or something. It that album Dig just it embodies, it solidifies everything that Canadian music had a potential of doing in that first mm. jump into the nineties and, uh, seeing, um, Edwin, his voice soaring through that little club. Uh, yeah, that was, that was exceptional. Um, so I'm mother earth in there also, you know, do you remember the first time you photographed uh, I'm mother? So I'm sure I photographed them at, um, uh, call the office, uh, at least once live. And then I remember photographing them at the warehouse or the, maybe it was the cool house by then in Toronto. Mm. And then as far as doing photos with them, maybe the first shoot I did with them was for access or impact access, I think. And then I, I managed to get a, a record label shoot with them too, like publicity photos. And we did it down at the rehearsal space. You mentioned having a working relationship with the tragically hip. Um, how long after that initial meeting in uh, Europe did you guys reconnect and start working together in Canada? Well, I think the relationship really turned into something maybe around 1998. However, I photographed them a handful of times in the 90s. My first time seeing them would have been in 91, I think, at the Ontario Place um, theater where the, they had that revolving stage. And I remember Gord like swimming backwards against the re revolution of the stage. And then 93, uh, and then I photographed them at, uh, uh, Maple Leaf Gardens, maybe Dave for night or trouble in the hen house. I can't remember which album. And then, um, sometime in about 98, 99, when Phantom Power was coming out, I got a photo shoot, for chart magazine to photograph Gord and Jose Contreras together. Um, they were doing, uh, uh, by divine right was going to open on the Phantom power tour, the cross Canada tour. So we were doing like this pre story before they went across Canada. So I photographed Jose and Gord together. We chose the horseshoe as a location, um, you know, mainly because, um, well, first of all, the horseshoe is sizable and we could have it for the full day because they aren't doing anything in the daytime there. So it was a kind of a cool location. I also chose it because, um, you know, the hip have their, some of their beginnings there and I knew it would be a comfortable place for us all to be in, uh, easy parking, you know, you can go, <laughs> go in the backyard and bring all the gear in or the back alleyway there. And, uh, so there was a lot of great play things about shooting there. Uh, so I remember going down to the management afterwards and I was speaking to Shelly Sturtz and or Jake Gold and I was showing them the photos from the shoot uh, because they wanted to see them you know they the management had their finger on most things creative and they wanted to make sure that the right they were being represented the right way so I brought them down the photos and uh, there's this one photo that I know you know of it's mm -hmm. where Gord is pulling down his toque and uh, it's kind of funny because when I looked at that contact sheet at first, I thought, ah, there's nothing that really jumps out here. It, 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 they're good, but there was nothing that really jumped out. And then my friend uh, looked at it, and he's like, oh, Bellend. He calls me Bellend. There's your shot, man. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, and he pointed to that photo. I still, you know, didn't think a big thing about it. I went over to the management, and 
I'm sure it was Shelly Sturt said, oh, wow, that's a really great photograph of Gord. And the funny thing is it was Gord. I was just doing a test photograph at that moment. I was just getting ready to shoot and Gord was just fixing his hat at the time and uh, it ended up being that shot. So that's where the relationship kind of started when I, I went there that day and I was kind of shrewd, not shrewd's the wrong word, but I was kind of smart, I guess. I brought a bunch of um, live photos with me that I'd shot over the years, including those ones from Belgium. Hmm. And I said, oh, if you have a minute, can you look at these? And then uh, Shelly took a look at them. She's like, oh, wow, these are really cool. These are, you know, she said some nice things about them. And uh, she said, we don't have a photographer going out on the um, Phantom Power tour. Do you want to come and shoot some shows for us? And, you know, it was one of those moments again where I had to be cool. But inside, I was like, yes, of course I do. <laughs> and I probably was going, oh, I, I better go look at my schedule to Shelly or something, trying to be the cool guy. And uh, so that was the beginning. And, um, you know, it, it worked out really well because, uh, you know, I would think of myself as a respectful dude. And I went there and I played it cool. And I think the mistake a photographer can make is trying to be friends right away or, mm. Hey, can I get your autograph or can you sign my t-shirt or whatever? So I don't, I didn't do any of that stuff. I just was a fly on the wall and stayed out of people's way and made some photographs off in the corner. And it, it just kind of kept building from there. And then Billy Ray, you know, amazing guy. So, so kind. He, you know, cause he's the guy that you get through him and Ricky really, uh, they stop you from anything or they let you do whatever. And so I, you know, built working friendships with those guys as well. And then the doors just started opening and, you know, Johnny Faye again, he opened up the door to me because Johnny at some point he said, Hey Richard, you know, if you want to jump up on my, um, my drum riser, you're welcome to do that anytime. I'm like, really? <laughs> He's like, yeah, but whatever you do, just let me know that it's you because if I don't know who's on my drum riser, I'm bound to turn around and knock you off. And <laughs> so I always kind of like just snuck around and let him see me. And then I would jump up on his drum riser. So, uh, you know, things just kept opening. And then one night when we're in Vancouver, I still had never been on the stage. So we're going back a step here. Mm. And, uh, it, it was uh, encore time. So I was backstage just watching the band again, not bothering them or whatever. And Rob Baker came up to me and he said, Hey, do you want to come out on the stage? And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, man, like, why don't you come out on the stage during encore? And it was the first time I'd ever been on a stage of, mm. of that enormity. Right. So, you know, we walk out there and there's 20 million people or 20,000 people, um, cheering and it was really uncomfortable for me. And I was, to be honest, I was kind of terrified because we were walking up. I can still remember what the stairs are made of that kind of uh, uh, metal grate. And um, I remember walking up there and of course I know no one's cheering for me, but I was really self-conscious about it because I'm like, what, what do I do? You guys didn't tell me where to stand. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And <laughs> I'm behind Gord. So the four guys go on. Gord is probably one second off the, the rhythm of the other four guys going on. The lights come on. The crowd goes berserk. And then I'm like, oh, my God, are people looking at me going, what is that guy doing on that stage? <laughs> and this is film photography. So there's no way you can look at your camera um, to see if you got your exposure right. And all I kept thinking was, dude, do not mess up your exposure and do not mess up your focus because they're going to want to see these photos later. <laughs> and when I look at those photos now, they're okay. They're, they, they both 
all the photos are in focus and they are well exposed, but I didn't have the right lens on to get the whole stage in one shot. So I made kind of a panoramic photo, but it, it was just kind of funny because I was so nervous. And <laughs> from that point forward, they always let me on the stage. I, like, in fact, it was just like, I never had to ask. I just could go, you know, obviously I would hide behind Mm-hmm. amplifiers or whatever I wouldn't stand out in the open um but that was the first time and uh uh so and then it just built Johnny was super nice to me and you know and then the other guys it, it, it just kind of it just built into something um like a a slow moving snowball you know and just as a throwback to that um or a callback to that story about photograph of Gore pulling the toque down like you said it is is synonymous with Gore Downey I mean I've seen that people get that tattooed on their bodies, that photograph. Um, is there anything else you can maybe tell people who, um, about that day? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for saying that. Um, um, synonymous with Gord. That's, uh, that's a great thing to be a great sentence to be placed in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have seen a tattoo, uh, that someone got of that. And a couple people have drawn it and, and sent mm-hmm. me pictures and, one artist uh, in particular from Vancouver actually came to my house here in Ontario and brought me a print of it, which was amazing. Hmm. Um, that day was a bit overcast. I think it was in March. So, you know, it was uh, a March in Toronto. Uh, it, it, the snow was melting. Not only was it overcast, I remember the day as being like the the air was filled with warm, melted precipitation like i just remember the air being kind of thick and uh and but it, if you if you're a photographer you'll know this like that's really good light to photograph in and so we were setting up in the horseshoe you know we did some shots in the band room we did some at the bar and then i said you know what why don't we just jump outside here because the available light it won't require any setup maybe just a reflector to fill in the shadows a bit um let's just go out back and Right beside the horseshoe at that time, there was, um, I think it was a store that sold fur coats or something, but they had this kind of uh, a stucco beige wall. And I said, Gord, why don't you just, and I did shots of Gord and Jose, not together, separately. And I said, why don't you just go up against that wall? We'll use it as backdrop and we'll just use the available light. And that's all that is. It's just available mm-hmm. light. I only shot black and white film, you know, and I remember my assistant, um, Gord had the toque and it was kind of funny. My assistant said to Gord, what does TTH stand for? (laughs) And Gord just looked at him really deadpan and just went the tragically hip. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was, it was awkward forward slash funny, you know, and uh, you knew Gord was being, he, he wasn't being mean. He was just being dry. That's amazing. Yeah. The tragically hip. (laughs) And then we did some other photos, which are kind of cool. There's this back alley that runs the length of um, behind the horseshoe goes from Spadina all the way over to Phoebe street. And um, my assistant opened up his trunk and I sat in the trunk of the car and we have photographs of Gordon Jose walking down the alleyway. And Mm. so he would drive at the same pace they were walking and I would just keep shooting, shooting, shooting. Mm. Then we would back up and, you know, we probably did three runs down the alleyway. Um, so we did that. We, we did probably five or six different shots, like type of photographs that day. And, um, initially it was published in chart magazine and the cover's really cool. It's got Jose and Gord kind of 
laughing uh, on the cover and you can see those iconic lights that are over the bar and the horseshoe uh, in the photograph. And then we have some of them down in that green band room. Boom, that just, it opened up the doors. And then when Gord put out his first solo record, they used that as publicity for his, for his album which was really cool. They used two shots from that shoot. And so it just kept kind of turning into something, you know? You also mentioned uh, being on stage with a hip. And there's also another uh, photograph that you posted on your Instagram of Gordani laying down the uh, the camera tracks at Woodstock. <laughs> um, can you share any memories of shooting them at Woodstock or just overall being there in that kind of environment? You know, I, I was born in 67, so... You know, I, I wasn't permitted to go to the first Woodstock because I was three <laughs> years old. But uh, growing up, I was always like, oh, Woodstock, Woodstock, the name. Right, just right. I mm-hmm. watched that movie so many times, the first Woodstock. So when Woodstock 94 came along, I had a photo pass and I photographed all kinds of great mm-hmm. bands in Woodstock 94. And then when Woodstock 99 came around, I was equally excited. And a, a journalist and a friend of mine, Paul, we were – I think we were working for Chart at the time. We went to uh, Woodstock '99 to photograph it, and he was doing. Uh, jur- he was the journalist there, and um, right away there was a weird vibe at '99. It, it, you know, you picked up on it immediately. It was this big air for air force place or whatever, and there was no grass barely. It was like all tarmac, and it was cooking hot. And they were charging some outrageous amount of money for water and it mm-hmm. wasn't easily water accessible. And then they had all these really aggressive bands, which, you know, I'm not knocking them because I'm a fan of Rage Against the Machine. I'm a fan of Metallica, but it doesn't embody the Woodstock spirit, that hard music, right? Mm-hmm. So the Tragically Hip in 99 were a, a beacon of beauty. <laughs> um, <laughs> they were everything that Woodstock should be in the nineties. You know what I mean? And they were the best band there as far as I'm concerned, not just because they're the hip or they're Canadian. Mm -hmm. They did everything that they do. And it was the best. Um, this is at a point when I would already been on the stage a couple times. So they gave me stage access. I have some really great photographs behind the curtain before the band went on stage where they're, I think Gordon Gord are looking through the curtain at the massive oh, wow. crowd. Yeah. I got a couple of shots out. I got Johnny sitting off on his own, just putting on his, uh, I think he was wearing some gloves or something that day and holding his drumsticks. I got a lot of great stuff backstage mm. there. And, um, so when the band went on, you know, awesome. It was just the crowd, Canadian flags, and it was just everything was so perfect. And thank you, Tragically Hip, for for being the bandit there. And so I was up on the stage, and I I could feel that Gord was going to lay on those tracks. I just I knew he was going to do it, even though I didn't know he was going to do it. <laughs> it felt like he was eyeing it up or something, and it just it was just too perfect, you know. And so he laid down on the the railroad tracks, so to speak. And, uh, and I just managed to lock down a few photographs. The one that, you know, is kind of the one that you see the most often. It was for sure the best shot. I, I probably have a series, not, not probably, I do have a series of photos from that moment. There's probably six or seven in a row, but that one 
it was just the, the shot. And if you watch the video, you can see me off on the side photographing yeah. it. Um, damn, I forget what song it is, but you can see me in the video shooting, keeping out of the way, squatting down or whatever. Cause yeah. it was in the broad daylight. Mm-hmm. But I remember just going, ah, this is a great moment. You know, <laughs> as a photographer, when that moment's in front of you, it's very exciting. Right. And, uh, that was one of those moments where I was just like, Oh yes, yes. I can't wait to see this film. You were one of the uh, the lucky photographers chosen by them to uh, document their last tour, or at least eight or nine shows, I believe. Can you talk about uh, the emotions from your end, uh, knowing the gravity of that situation, and knowing that you've been uh, had this big responsibility to kind of document that for them and for the fans of the band? Well, geez, um, yeah, a lot of even right now i i god it, it hits you so fast i feel emotional about it you know uh the th- let, let me just put the hip in context for me and probably for many people mm-hmm. i don't even associate the hip with like canadian 90s music or whatever the hip just live in this different um a parallel world almost <laughs> like their music to me it, it, it's it's not it's not that it's not part of that core 90s Canadian music it's just something different like it's Mm -hmm. it's just artwork that should be hung in the Museum of Modern Art (laughs) or at the National Portrait Gallery like it's just something different um and it really does live on a different plane so I I I think I need to put that in context so um the hip uh uh for me and for probably most people uh knowing that that was the final tour it just was super emotional um I have a contract, you probably know this, uh, where I'm the house photographer at Fallsview Casino. Mm-hmm. Um, so my contract states that I need to be present for all the gigs. As soon as I found out the hip tour dates on the final tour, I lined it up with my Fallsview uh, mm-hmm. uh, contract. And there was, I could get away with going to, I think, nine of the 16 shows or 15 shows. So I photographed, um, you know, I think eight or nine shows on that tour. Uh, I couldn't do them all, even though, uh, it, it was offered to me that I could do them all, but I couldn't because of my contract. Mm-hmm. Um, the first show I did was out in Vancouver. So that would have been the second show. Cause they played Victoria the night or two before. And right away when they came on stage, uh, I could, my eyes just welled up. And, um, even right now I can feel that, that emotion going over me. And I, I remember, Oh yeah, you got a job to do here. You got to shoot through, you know, your eyes filled with tears and mm-hmm. even the band in the beginning, I remember, I, I can't claim for sure that they had tears, but I really feel like it was a flood of emotion for them as well, watching them on stage. And, mm. you know, you you were there in the beginning. They really gathered around Gord in, in the first few songs. Like it was like this, they were playing in a club almost, and they stood around him in a circle and played. <laughs> and it, it was just incredible uh, a feeling. And then when we got out to Ontario, uh, that's where I picked up a bunch more shows and, um, it was same thing, just that emotion. And then certain songs that like grace Two really jumps out as one of the songs where it's like Gord was exercising those demons out of him Um, whenever you would sing grace Two, and, and especially in the, you know, the, the crescendo of the song nearing the end there, but being there, I knew it was important. I knew, uh, I knew it was the final tour. God, I even hate saying that. Mm-hmm. And then I was in Kingston as well. And I, I had a seat for the Kingston show and 
I just took it all in and I did my best to not watch through my telephone and just watch and know that, you know, I think it, it was probably my 150th ish tragically hip concert. So, uh, I guess it, I really wanted to just let it flow over me and in me and, uh, through my heart and through my mind. And yeah, I, I don't know. And then, you know, finding out that, uh, Gord had died, that was a, a big day as well, you know, mm-hmm. a sad day and like the rest of the country, uh, it's a hard day. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that tour, it was amazing musically. Oh, wow. They were playing tip top and, uh, Gord looked amazing. You know, the, the, the suits he was wearing that, uh, Izzy had designed, um, and the hats, I don't know. Everything about it was perfect. And it, if, if we have to put an end to it, uh, or if it had to end, that was a good way for them to, to lay down their guitars and, you know, no easy transition from something that's uh, difficult to talk about and, but, uh, to something a little bit lighter to, to kind of change the, uh, the tone. Um, there's another shoot that, um, I know has a, a good story to it and that's one with the headstones and an angry Hugh Dillon. <laughs> Yeah. So the headstones, I always love the headstones, you know, as you know, um, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the Ramones kind of vibe, right? Like it's just got that punk, but there's a bit of a pop friendliness to it as well. Like they got some really good hooks in their music or whatever. Um, so I photographed the headstones a number of times and I should have mentioned them because they're another Collie office band. And so anyway, the particular shoot that you're talking about, I was doing my best to embody a Richard Avedon kind of spirit. If you don't know, you probably do, but for whoever doesn't know Richard Avedon, he or Irving Penn or more Richard Avedon, but he was a fashion photographer. uh, And um, what he would do is he would kind of get his, his subjects to cooperate with them by psychologically probing their minds. And I remember (laughs) reading that and I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, try and channel my best Richard Avedon with the headstones. Let's try this out. But I also wanted to do something that was Ramones-esque. So we did a number of different shots that day, but the one that you're talking about, uh, this is where I was trying to channel the Richard Avedon. So, you know, I said to Hugh, I'm like, okay, what I want to, or I didn't say this to Hugh. I said it to the four guys. I said, what I'm going to do here is I want you guys to hold Hugh back. And then Hugh's going to come at me with great anger and you guys need (laughs) to hold him back. And if you've seen Tim with his shirt off, for example, the bass player, uh, you know how big that guy is. Like he's big (laughs) and he's just loaded with muscles. So when you look at that photograph, it's real. Like, uh, Hugh is physically, if they would have let him go, he would have taken me out. He would have ran over my <laughs> tripod and bowled me over. I doubt he was going to punch me, but what I was <laughs> yelling at him was things that a normal person would have been punched for. <laughs> so I was like, fuck you. Come on, fucker. Wow. I was just screaming at him, but just to, it's all fake, but it's all real, right. 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 Mm-hmm. And so they're literally holding him back and I did not want to let him go because 
it's not even me I was worried about. It was my $5,000 camera. I didn't have <laughs> taken that out, right? But I'm yelling literally every obscenity that I was capable of screaming at him. And so he's like, ah, fuck, you're coming to get me, right? And so we ended up getting that photograph against the brick wall. And the brick wall was chosen because I wanted that Ramones kind of feel. Mm. And then the, the, the anger fight uh, photo was just like, I wanted to embody their onstage feeling. Not that Hugh was ever going to punch anybody on stage, but mm-hmm. there was a bit of this pent-up aggression that would happen on stage that sometimes the lid came off of it, and it wasn't yeah, necessarily... It could be dangerous. It was, there's an element of danger, for sure. Yeah. yeah, like I can remember Hugh taking his mic stand, you know, one of those big lead round mic stands and smashing beer bottles at, <laughs> uh, on stage. And uh, I remember him being, you know, I don't know if he was drunk for sure, but it sort of felt like he was indulging in many beers uh, on stage. So I wanted to get that vibe that you could Mm -hmm. get the best I could do. So that's what that photograph is. And, uh, you know, I photographed Hugh and the headstones, Hugh separately and the headstones uh, over the years and great guys to work with just super cool guys. And I love their music. And that particular photograph was, it was so fun. What's a, a headstone song that you really dig? Oh man. You know, smile and wave. I think that's what we did that. Uh, I think that's what we did that shot for. Was for that album. Ever fool. I saw- 
Also, speaking of promo photographs, you also shot um, for Holly McNarland on her first record. Oh, man. Holly was great. Holly is great. And it's not like we were friends or whatever, but we were Mm -hmm. friendly where we had these cool conversations. And um, Sue McCallum, who is also a friend of mine, she was over at MCA. I think it was in the early days and then it was Universal. So Sue McCallum was uh, a big support and help and kind person to me over at the record label. And she would often connect me with these photo shoots. I'd photographed Holly a bunch of times. Uh, uh, I think maybe I shot her in concert the first time I'd ever photographed her. And that might've been upstairs at the big bop. I forget what that room was called. Maybe the reverb or the cathedral or something like that. And that might've been my first introduction with Holly. And then we did a couple photo shoots. So back in those days, I had this really cool, uh, 1979 Volkswagen van and, uh, man, I sold it a handful of years ago now and I wish I would have kept it, but this van, I can tell you a bunch of great stories of bombing around in the van with Chris Murphy and Ron Sexsmith <laughs> and Holly McNarland was one of them. And the van was really cool because I had it decked out with this incredible stereo. And uh, (laughs) I popped up the back seat and I had two massive subwoofers installed in there. And then I had a 12-pack CD player. Um, And whoever I was working with, we would jump in my van. And the van had its own vibe. It had its own story. And then it had this killer stereo so we could get in there and just crank up the tunes. And so Holly and I um, and Sue went cruising around in my van and uh the one day we went out to this it's gone now there used to be this amazing brickyard uh that made bricks out near hamilton off the qew or the 403 or something it's a bunch of houses now like everything is and uh i always eyed up this spot as a shoot and um I think I'd photographed uh, uh, this other Canadian band out there called Laughing Sam's Breakdown first. And then I brought Holly out there. And so just the van kind of built this feeling of going, you know, it, it, it into itself is a bit of a conversation piece. And so Holly and I sat in the front seats and went out there and we did a bunch of photographs out there. And I got some really cool stuff uh, of her in this like stone archway. And she was just a natural in front of the camera. It's not like you had a director. She just had this natural beauty and natural ability to make a great photograph by her own pose without even posing. 
And that's one of my memories. I remember talking to Holly about Led Zeppelin and I remember saying, oh, you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, four of the greatest. And she's like, I thought there were five. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's not five people in Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and anyway, I, I do recall us talking about Led Zeppelin. And then a different shoot we did ended up on one of her singles. And it's this blue wall. So before the distillery mm -hmm. district was the distillery district, it was just this old beat up old area. And I knew I, I would ride around Toronto on my bicycle all the time as well. And I would keep an eye on great locations. And one of the locations was down beside the distillery long before they cleaned it up down there. I think it was maybe where homeless people lived or something. It was not a great place, but it was a great place for photographs. And so mm -hmm. I brought Holly down there as well. And we, we did a couple of uh, photo shoots down there. And that's what I remember about Holly. And then I obviously remember Holly's voice. What was it like touching base again with Ken Tizzer and the Watchmen? Now that he's part of the Watchmen, he's, he's in a successful band. You're now a successful photographer. I mean, you shot them for uh, Chart Magazine. You know, when you photograph a band that you don't know, there's no door that's open. But with the Watchmen, because I knew Ken, there was a door that was open. So Ken was able to say, oh, you know, this guy's cool. Let's, you know, turn it on and, and help him out or whatever. So I had photographed the Watchmen a handful of times and it was always an amazing experience because the door was open thanks to Ken. And um, so for that particular shoot, we did that up at the, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, maybe the Mississauga Performing Arts Center or something like that, or the North York Performing Arts Center. I don't know why we had that as a location. Maybe that's, or sorry, maybe the Watchmen were playing there that night or something. Anyway, I had this idea that we would dress these guys up as like press people and they were almost paparazzi photographers. And so I brought these two guys that were comedians. They're called Frolic and Hop. They were comedians in Toronto. They play at Second City or whatever. And they were, you know, willing participants. And uh, so we had a really fun shoot where I had these paparazzi dogging the watchmen and you know, there's shots of them trying to kick the paparazzi and pushing them away or whatever. And then the paparazzi were being very aggressive and that ended up being used in the magazine. You know, that, uh, accessibility and cooperation came from the fact that Ken, uh, and I have known each other for years and years. Right. And he helped mm -hmm. open the door and help the guys feel comfortable around me. And that was a, that was a chart magazine shoot for sure. Another band that you mentioned having a, a deep connection with um, a good creative relationship is uh, Nickelback. Now, Nickelback, a lot of people don't really consider a 90s band because all their success really came post the decade. But they did release two records in the 90s, I believe. Um, do you remember photographing them in the 90s or seeing them in the 90s? Or did your relationship start all in the 2000s? So the first time I saw Nickelback live would be the very last day of the 90s, which is kind of interesting. Huh. I went out to Vancouver for 1999, New Year's Eve. And, I, you know, this was just a fun night. I went with my friends and we went to see Kiss. And Nickelback and Econoline Crush were the openers. There might have been one other band I forget. So that was the first time I saw Nickelback um, would be the very last day of the 90s. So the first time I started working with Nickelback was on the Silver Side Up album. And um, I went out there to Vancouver to Mushroom Studio or Greenhouse Studio or something. I forget what studio. And uh, I went out there for Chart Magazine. And that was the first time I met 
um, Chad was in the studio that day and we hit it off right from the beginning. And, you know, I, I, I know Nickelback for whatever reason is this polarizing band in mm -hmm. Canada and around the world. And to some degree, it kind of bothers me. I, I get defensive for Nickelback because let me tell you, those four guys are four of the nicest guys I've ever met in any band. They're four of the most collaborative, kind, cooperative, great guys. Like they're just great guys. I, you know, I can't say enough good things about them. So when I went out to uh, Vancouver, the first time I worked with them, right when my assistant and I walked in the studio, the first thing Chad said was, what do you guys drink? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> uh, normally I don't drink when I'm working or whatever. And he, he wouldn't take any of it. And it's kind of <laughs> funny because I finally just gave in and I said Heineken, which is a bear. Uh, I don't even drink Heineken. And <laughs> Within 30 minutes, there was a case of Heineken at the studio. And no it, that just showed me, it, it didn't show me. It, now I look back at it, it just tells me that's exactly what Chad's like. He's incredibly generous and he makes sure that you're taken care of. And so that was the first shoot. And then the second shoot I did with him would have been um, uh, All the Right Reasons. And it, our relationship just went from there. So I've been working with him now for 17, 18 years. And wow. It's an incredible relationship. They've been so nice to me. And, uh, you know, my my photograph have been in a few of their albums and countless live shows. Now, the record industry, not just in Canada, but all over the world, really changed from the beginning of the decade of the 90s to the end of the decade. I'm curious, did you uh, really notice that from your perspective, that of a, a rock music photographer? Yeah, it changed on a dime. In, in, you know, probably it didn't if I was back in that day, but in my memory, it changed mm -hmm. on a dime. And it really was Napster. It, it was the proliferation of the theft of music. It, it, it felt like it happened overnight. I'm sure it happened over a year period, but right at the end of the 90s, I'm sure we could Google the date when Napster came on board and then LimeWire and, uh, uh, all these places that you could get music and and all of a sudden budgets went from, you know, there was some really beautiful <laughs> photography budgets and working budgets in the nineties. And then it was gone. Hmm. And uh, it really felt like it happened overnight. And so I'm sure this had a huge impact across the board for, for my point of view as a photographer, you had to pivot and find other means to uh, keep your, um, finances coming in, you know, making a living. And by that point I was actually making a living as a photographer. That's how I paid my bills completely in 1999, 2000. So, um, I made a couple, uh, changes, pivots at that point. One of them was, um, I started doing more photography for Roy Thompson Hall and Massey Hall. So I was kind of doing more corporate photography. Uh, it, it still was music related, but I started working for the TSO at that time. And um, I was kind of the house photographer for Roy Thompson Hall and whoever played there and whatever played there. And I did a lot of architectural photography. I would photograph for the Toronto National Film Festival. Um, everything that happened at RTH at Roy Thompson Hall. And then the other thing that was big for me to change was I started working for the OLG, the Ontario Lottery and Gaming. I, I managed to pivot and still make a really good living as a photographer between Roy Thompson Hall and then working up at a, a Casino Rama. And eventually that morphed into Falls View Casino. And you kind of had to pivot at the end of the 90s because all of a sudden uh, the record labels weren't 
hiring with the same budgets, the budgets just went from, you know, I don't want to get into exact figures, but it was like a fifth of the money was available and you, you couldn't really just live off of only that. So you had to find other ways as a, as an artist, as a photographer. If you were to describe the nineties Canadian music scene in Canada to either somebody from another country or somebody who wasn't born in the nineties, how would you describe it? Um, well, first of all, you and I can both say it was incredibly exciting. You know, it just felt like every Canadian band, they were putting out this incredible music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you think about I'm Mother Earth and OLP and uh, uh, 5440, who've been just a, a great mainstay in the Tragically Hip and Bare Naked Ladies and Boots Sauce and Chunk House and the Tea Party. It goes on and on and on. Like they all had these great albums. So I, I don't want to say this, but I am going to say this to some degree it paralleled the success of what was going on in the American music industry and the British mm-hmm. music industry. They all had really great, a, a really great era in the nineties. And so if you said to me, explain to somebody from another country, well, it mirrored or paralleled the excitement that was going on in the United States, whatever was going on North of the border was just as exciting it was what was going on south of the border or over in England. So we all were really witnessing something that was, it was alive. It was thrilling. It was on fire, man. Like it was great. And uh, it just felt like it was an endless procession of great albums, great bands, great musicians. And we were fortunate to be in the middle of our own whirlwind of great music. And, and, um, so that's how I would describe it. And I'm sure I did have to describe it when I would be in London. They'd be like, oh, what's going on in the Canadian music industry? But unfortunately, in this weird way, it kind of stayed in Canada. You know, yes, mm-hmm. I did photograph some of the bands um, that would come, you know, Canadian bands. Like I remember shooting the Tea Party in London at the garage. Uh, I, I don't remember the, the capacity. Maybe that's 800 people or something. You know, and it was full, but it was kind of full of Canadians. I photographed the hip over in London at um, Shepherd's Bush. Uh, I don't know the, mm. maybe the capacity there is 5,000. You know, not to take away anything from the guys and nobody could ever claim I'm trying to, but it was mm. a lot of Canadians in the in the crowd. Um, it, for whatever reason, I don't know why it didn't really lock down because it sure deserved to. Mm-hmm. And it was a disservice to the the residents of America and of, um, of Europe that they didn't see it in a bigger light because man, that music was as good as anybody's music. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, we've talked a lot about the photographs you've shot today and a lot of them are on your Instagram. Is there a way for fans to purchase prints of these photographs? Yeah. So I do uh, a fine art print thing. Um, I don't really advertise it so much. I probably should. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you go onto my website, uh, richardbeland.com, uh, there is a little click there. You can click fine art prints. And I have some of them there. Uh, I don't have them all listed. And, um, you know, there's some good interest and and it's consistent and it's kind of cool. And uh, I think people uh, like the packaging and the way that I, I print, I print everything myself. So there's great care that goes into it. I don't just ship it off. Uh, the prints are done. You know, I think one of the things I'm good at is printing. I've been printing photographs, uh, uh, since geez, the mid eighties. Uh, so I started out printing 
traditionally, and and now I'm doing digital prints. So I'm I'm very good at printing, and I th- I believe personally that printing is the the final part of the process. So mm. I, I put great care and great pride into the prints I make. So yeah, they they can purchase fine art prints, and uh, I think anybody that has or will would be very happy uh, at the quality of print that they're getting. Now before I get into uh, my final question, um, is there anything that's uh we missed that you were thinking, thinking might have came up today in our conversation. I don't think there's anything that we missed. I'm just, honestly, I'm really grateful that you think enough of my work to include me oh. and uh, uh, the opportunity to just be able to ramble and talk and reminisce. And we should have done this at night with a couple pints. You probably got <laughs> even more stories out of me. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Like I, I just, I'm really loving the opportunity to tell these stories and to go back and think about it. Cause some of this stuff, like you, you're catching me off guard. I, I'm like, Oh, I haven't even remembered that in so long. Right? <laughs> well, I'm grateful you accepted the invitation because I believe that, uh, your photographs really captured the spirit of the nineties in Canada. And it was really interesting to hear some of the stories behind them. Right on. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I guess I jumped in at a good time, I guess. Like I graduated in 94 and it was a, I, I was already doing it. So I, I, there's some serendipity and luck and <laughs> certainly motivation. I've always been really motivated, but I think I jumped in at a serendipitous kind of time, you know, is like yeah. jumping into a wheel that's already moving. Um, final question. Now I have a playlist, a companion playlist to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Music of all 90s can rock. So I'm asking all the guests to contribute uh, three songs for the playlist to kind of, uh, in your case, uh, what kind of three songs represent your time in the Canadian music industry in the 90s? <laughs> of all the questions you ask, this is the hardest one. <laughs> like, how can you put all of that music into three songs? And I don't want to offend mm-hmm. any of the bands either. Okay, let's let's go here. I'm a bit of a sucker for pop hooks, and uh, that's, uh, you know... Uh, there's this song, I think maybe you posted something about it the other day, but it, Sandbox, and the song's Curious. Right. I freaking love that song. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, it's like eating ice cream. I could just continue to eat it until my tummy gets upset. <laughs> like, it's just such a perfect pop song. I wonder where you are, Curious. I wonder where you are, mm-hmm. Safe I Trust. And I yeah. love that line, Safe I Trust. I think it's just so... It's caring, but it's perfect, and I love that song. Okay, so, God, can I pick that as one of my first ones? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to pick an I, Mother Earth song because if you put a gun to my head and held me in the corner and said, you got to <laughs> grab one album from the 90s, I I have to pick I, Mother Earth Dig. It just, <laughs> it, it, to me, and, and it's just, you know, there's a song on there called like, Not Quite Sonic, but sonically, that album is just, it roars with everything. It gives you everything an album should give you. And um, I don't know whether to pick Rain Will Fall or Not Quite Sonic off of there because they're just like, they're, those songs are journeys. From, <laughs> and I think they're both like five plus minutes. So yeah, yeah they're epic. Yeah. Epic. Thank you. I don't know. God, let's go with Rain Will Fall, I guess. Sure, yeah. That's two. And then one more track. Dude, you're killing me. I'm going to pick a a, tra- a song by The Tragically Hip, and, and it's just because you're making me 
pick three and I need to encapsulate the whole thing. And mm-hmm. like I said, the, the tragically hip they're I'm sorry, every other band, but they just live in this different world. Uh, and, and, you know, nobody touches Gord Downey as a lyricist, except you want to go back to Leonard Cohen or maybe some Neil Young lyrics or something, uh, as a lyricist that he just, he lives somewhere else. And, you know, Rob Baker in my eyes is the greatest, uh, you know, and again, I, I'm not talking Alex Lifeson here because he lives in a different world as well, but, uh, Rob Baker is so underrated and he deserves so much credit for being this masterful, beautiful painter of a guitar player. He just layers stuff on top of the hips music. So I got to pick a hip song and I'm fighting right now between nautical disaster and locked in a trunk. Um, because again, these are journeys that just give you everything the hip are capable of in one song. I'm going to go with nautical disaster as my third because it, 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 it gives you this opening and it layers and it, it, mm-hmm. it's just beautiful that opening. And then lyrically, I, I mean, you could grab one of 15 songs to grab lyrics for Gord, but it, there's this story during that song that allows you in, but doesn't hand it to you. And it makes you work a little bit. And, uh, uh, so nautical disaster. And then it's, it's got, it, it kind of crescendos in the song and then it brings you back down and it's sonically it, it's perfect. And, oh man, you are making it difficult. Well, I think you, you, you pick three solid songs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, there's just so many songs I could have, mm-hmm. And I apologize to all the other Canadian bands because I don't want to leave anyone out. No, of course not. No, but it was, it's my fault. So you can blame the podcast host that he only gave me three. But uh, anyhow, well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about your experience in the 90s, man. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, thank you for including me and thinking, you know, like I said, that I'm worthy. Uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and I wish you the best on this project. And if there's anything I can do sincerely to help, you know, whether it's pictures or stories or trying to open up other doors for you, or if there's some way I can help, I'm happy to try. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash ravedrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search ravedrool, and you can buy various goods with the Ravendrool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s Karen Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.